0: Father, you are glorious and infinite, and we open your word humbled that we have a word to open, that though you are infinite, you come down, you reveal yourself to us, you make known your ways to Moses, your acts to the people of Israel, and you send ultimately your son. And we get to look today as John prepares his way, we get to gaze at your Son yet again in the Gospel of Matthew. And we pray that as we do, as we look at your Word that you've given to us, that the living God has given to us, that the living Spirit of God would transform our hearts, that we would see Jesus more clearly, we would see ourselves more clearly, that we would know the glories of repentance, of turning from ourselves, of our dead works, and turning to the perfect Jesus and resting in his perfect work. I pray that with all my might, in his beautiful name, amen. So we, uh, chapter 3, have been walking through uh, the story of John the Baptist. We finished the infancy narrative of Jesus, and now we kind of fast forward maybe around 30 years, and we started with John the Baptist. Jeff uh, opened last week. We saw that a new prophet is here. There's in between your Old Testament and your New Testament 400 years of silence, as it's often called. And it's called that because there's no Jeremiah anymore. There's no Isaiah anymore. There's no Ezekiel anymore. There's no one coming and saying, thus says the Lord. There's no prophet bringing the word of the Lord. And here, finally, after 400 years, we have the new Elijah, the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way from the Lord. And we saw last week, everyone everyone, everyone in the whole region is going out to see him and to hear his message and to repent of their sin and to be baptized. And so today we're in this same story. We're still by the Jordan. John is still baptizing people, except we're going to see two more groups show up to this baptism party, and it's going to cause a little bit of a stir. We're going to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up. So today we're going to look at three things The enemy of the kingdom, Jeff did a great uh, job last week overviewing the gospel of the kingdom. We're still in that context, so we're going to see the enemies of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, and the king of the kingdom. The enemies of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, and the king of the kingdom. So let's look at that first one, the enemies of the kingdom. Look down at verse 7. But when he, John the Baptist, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid At the root of the trees, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we have these two new groups, new characters being introduced into the story. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, you may be familiar with them. They show up and John has a little reaction as a result of their presence. He doesn't say, oh, hello, welcome. No, what does he say? Freaks out a little bit. You brood of vipers and begins preaching a Turner Burn, I think we would call it, sermon to them. So who are these guys? Why is John reacting in the way that he's reacting? Who are the Sadducees and the Pharisees? In Jewish society, in John's day, these were the religious leaders. The Sadducees were the ones in charge of the temple. They uh, kind of were viewed by the purists, by the Pharisees, as sellouts. They were the guys who kind of cooperated with Rome in order to keep their power and stay over the things of the temple. So if you want to thank Levites, they're not direct descendants from Levites, but that's the kind of group, those in charge of the temple things. And then the Pharisees, these are the keepers and the teachers and the interpreters of the law. The Sadducees are high class, Uh, the Pharisees are more low class with the people going around teaching the law. In fact, they're so zealous for the law of God, they decided to add a bunch of extra laws. We'll see uh, this constant reference to the traditions of men. That's the Pharisees adding extra laws to God's law, basically putting a burden on the people to say, you want to follow God's law, don't just read God's law and follow God's law. Rather," Take these extra steps that we will put in place for you and follow all of those laws as well. So you see a lot of legalism, particularly with the Pharisees, a lot of self-righteousness, trusting in their own works and things like that. These two groups do not like each other. And so anytime you see them united, they really hate the one that they're united against. And we'll see throughout the gospel, them unite against Jesus. And here we're seeing them unite against John the Baptist. So that's who they are in society, the religious leaders Who are they in John's eyes? Look back at verse 7. Who does John say that they are? When he sees them, he calls them, you brood of vipers. He doesn't say, oh, great teachers of the scriptures. He says, you brood of vipers. Literally, you children, you offspring of serpents, you offspring of vipers. And to understand what he's saying We've got to rewind a bit. We've got to go back to Genesis 3. I feel like I'm always taking us back to the garden. We've got to go back to the Garden of Eden. We've got to go back to God's beautiful creation, puts Adam and Eve in the garden to work it, keep it made. They're they're made in God's image. Everything they do is meant to reflect the ultimate creator. Everything is good. Everything is very good until we get to chapter 3 when a serpent, when a viper shows up and begins to speak to Eve and Eve. Adam, and we know, maybe you know, the story where they are tempted to rebel against God, they fall to that temptation, and God's good creation is fractured, is absolutely broken. All the goodness now is broken, and God shows up and begins to pronounce curses on the serpent and on Eve and on Adam, and Genesis 3.15 is the very famous one where God says this to the serpent... I will put enmity, hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here, Genesis 3, right after the fall, you see one, you see a promised redeemer. But how? You see these two promised Seeds, these two promised offsprings, the seed, the offspring of the serpent, of the viper, and then the seed or the offspring of the woman. And the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel, and the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head. And James Hamilton, uh, Jim Hamilton, uh, says, an uh, Old Testament professor at Southern Seminary, says, the entire plot conflict of the scriptures, the life and death conflict, is basically tracing. Who is the seed of the woman and who is the seed of the serpent of the whole Bible? So for instance, what, right, right after Genesis 3, we have Cain. And so the question to the reader should be, is Cain the promised redeemer? He is literally the seed of the woman, right? Born of Eve, Cain, uh, Cain. is he the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent and deliver? And what do we see throughout the story? Who is Cain Really? He rebels against God. He doesn't bring new life. He takes away life and he is cursed with an almost identical curse as the serpent. We see Cain isn't the seed of the woman. Cain is actually the seed of the serpent. So all throughout the scriptures, that's a big question. David and Goliath isn't about you know how you can conquer your metaphorical enemies and get that promotion. It is seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman is victorious. The whole biblical narrative is tracing this life and death wrestling between these two seeds. And here, back in this story... We have those who are meant to be the religious leaders, the ones meant to be leading the people to God and pointing them to righteousness and pointing them to the living God that they're meant to love with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And who does John say they are? The seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent. These men, Pharisees and the Sadducees, will be the greatest opponents to Jesus' ministry. It will not be Rome That everyone thinks it's going to be. Jesus is going to show up and put them back on top like they were in David's day. It will be the religious leaders who are going to oppose the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of grace and mercy and love. So that's who they are, the seed of the serpent, the greatest opposition to the ultimate seed of the woman that we'll look at later in the sermon. So that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, it's important for us because a common Common kind of accusation or insult today is to call someone a Pharisee. And so it's really important while we're looking at these guys, kind of for the first time in the Gospel of John, to say what is a Pharisee? When someone's called a Pharisee, let's look at what it's not first. Typically, when you hear someone called a Pharisee or when you're called a Pharisee, it's when someone's holding to truth. Right? So I spent some time in a missions organization uh, that was more charismatic leanings, which isn't necessarily bad, but this place where we were they had a tendency to lean away from the scriptures onto what kind of felt good or what the spirit was doing even though the spirit wrote the bible and tells us what he's doing very clearly uh, and so something crazy would happen you know people would yell in tongues and i would open my bible and say hey leaders of our group paul really, everything that just happened paul describes and then says don't do that <laughs> so i just i think we shouldn't i just i don't and that would be the response. Okay, Mr. Pharisee, you've got the Bible on the throne. Why don't you take the Bible off the throne put Jesus back on the throne? And I would bang my head against a wall. Uh, okay. or. Every church discipline case I've ever been involved with where we've actually had to remove someone from the fellowship of the church, that is the accusation. Okay, I guess you're the one that's going to cast the first stone, Pharisee, because we're calling people to repent and we're calling people back to the word, right? So it's typically wrongfully used against people who are holding to truth, If if that were true. If holding the truth made you a Pharisee, Jesus would be the biggest Pharisee. He is the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? No one come to the, can come to the Father except through me. So that's an that's a, a incorrect view. If you get accused of that, just shake it off. However, there is a heart of the Pharisees that I think we do need to watch out for, which is putting your trust, putting your hope, putting your value in your abilities in your knowledge, in your works, so that you might promote your own self-righteousness. And here's why I think we need to be very humble and very, very careful. Notice, notice here, the Pharisees think they're fine. The Pharisees think they are the ones leading the people to God, and we know, reading this, they are the seed, the offspring of the devil, They are unbelievably blind to reality. Now, we've all been blind. I think we can admit this. We're all blind all the time in in life. So I'll give you an example. When your kid is born, and I'm guilty of this too, I'll admit it, you hold that little baby and you say, I know everyone says this, but this is, look at this baby. This is the most beautiful baby in the world. This is actually the most beautiful baby on planet Earth. And I did it. Harvey was born and I, with the youth, I like put his picture up and I was like, I get people say this, but look at these cheeks. There's no better symmetry in a newborn, right? And now I look back and I'm like, eh, yeah, he looks like Yoda, uh, <laughs> right? Love blinds you. It's okay to admit now, listen, sin specializes in blinding you. Sin specializes in blinding you. The first thing we hear about the serpent in the garden, what's the first characteristic, what's the first piece of information we get about the serpent? He's what? Crafty. He's crafty. Now, let me give you an example of the craftiness of the devil, how we can be blind. I think sometimes we think the devil just wants to make us an atheist or he just wants to make us woke or whatever. And then we're like, still believing and not woke. And we think Satan's like, oh man, I've been doing this for thousands of years, but they outsmarted me. I guess I'll leave and go tempt other people who are not as awesome as this group, right? That is not, I'll just tell you, that is not how the crafty enemy works. Jeff's been reading the screw tape letters. Go read the screw tape letters and C.S. Lewis gives you a picture of just the exhausting nature of his crafty enemy. Temptation. Here's what the devil's going to do. As you're not an atheist and not woke, he'll say, okay, here's what I'll do. These people who are conservative, these people who hold to truth, and that's their badge that they wear, it's a good badge to wear, here's what I'll do. I will make them scoff at those who don't. They won't be able to think of a liberal without gritting their teeth. I'll make them the most cynical people this age has known. I'll make mockery spring up in their heart every time they see something that's stupid or dumb. And you'll hear whispered in your ear over and over, why can't they just get it like you? What's wrong with the world? If only the world were more like you. It's so easy. I mean, common sense. I mean, it's just people, I guess, don't have common sense anymore. You'll hear that whispered in your ear all under the facade of we're the truth people. We're the good guys, right? Right? All the while, your heart is rotting with bitterness. Beware the blindness of the Pharisees. The enemy is very, very crafty. Beware the blindness of the Pharisees. Or I'll give another example. There's 12 trillion kids here. Every Sunday, you have an opportunity to watch a kid going crazy. And you have the opportunity to say, you know, how can I encourage that? Parent, or how can I care for them? Or how, you know, it's hard. I know it's hard. Or you have the opportunity to say, "My kids are doing just fine." Notice how my kid is obeying. Something must be happening at home. Marriage must not be great. I guess they don't just you know get it like me, and they're not as good of a parent as me. You see that? You see how easy it is. Beware the blindness of the Pharisees. The facade of being the truth people. All the while, your hearts are rotting with cynicism and bitterness. Jesus tells a story of two men in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. He's praying. Prays thus, God, I thank you. Gratitude, there it is, just like we talked about this morning. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week fasting it's a spiritual discipline there it is I tithe tithing that tithing that's a good thing all that I get I tithe on everything but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Beware the, bl- the blindness of the fasting, tithing, self-righteous Pharisee who goes away from God's house unjustified. How do you fight this blindness? If the devil's so crafty, how do we fight it? There's one way. Brand on your heart. Here's how you fight this. Blindness comes. This is the weapon against it. Brand on your heart. But for the grace of God, I am no different. But for the grace of God, I am no different. You are a sinner saved by a gracious God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Why do you see amazing grace? Don't flip those Don't all of a sudden start thinking your salvation is a result of your own awesomeness. That is the blindness of the Pharisees. So this is the enemies of the kingdom. We see them show up. We see John's reaction to their self-righteousness, to their mockery. They're there not to hear his message, by the way. They're not there in the same reason everybody else is there. They're there to correct it, to see... Why are these people showing up to this guy who's eating bugs? We're the ones who are unfolding God's word and telling the people what they should do. Here's the enemies of the kingdom. Beware their blindness and glory in being a sinner saved by a gracious God. Let's look at the next thing. So it's the enemies of the kingdom. John sees them and declares the message of the kingdom. He sees them, declares the message of the kingdom. Look at verse 7 again. But when he saw John sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee of the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear Good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the message of the kingdom is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Wrath, judgment is coming, right? The ax is at the root of the tree, ready to be chopped down. And there's one way to escape, repentance, repentance. So they, they get the same message that everyone is getting, by the way, Jeff talked about repentance last week. So wrath is coming, judgment is coming, repent. But for some reason, as Many, we don't know how many, are getting into the water and saying, okay, I repent. The Pharisees and the Sadducees don't get in the water, right? They're, they're again, blind to this message. What, what is it that's actually preventing them from getting in the water and preventing? We see, they say, what? We're sons of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham. They're putting their hope in their lineage, in their group, in their little tribe, really in their own, their own works, their own abilities, saying, again, we are sons of Abraham. Jeff talked about last week when people would come, repentance was a, was a commonly used word, and people would repent to join uh, the Jews, to join Judaism. And so the Pharisees here are thinking, Jews don't need to repent. People repent to join us, not the other way around. Why would we ever need to repent? The real issue here is pride and self-righteousness. John tells them to repent, and that hits their pride. I don't need to repent. I'm the leader. People repent and follow me, not the other way around. Now, remember, they are who? John has already told us. They're the sons, the offspring of the serpent. What is the first lie that the devil whispers into Eve's ear? You don't need to submit to a living God. Surely you won't die And if he told you that, surely it's because he wants power for himself. You don't need to submit to a living God. You determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. There's no standard above you telling you what to do. Rather, you are the God of your own life. You determine what is good and what is evil. We see here the Pharisees, Sadducees, believing the exact same lie, the lie of their father, the serpent, so what's preventing them from getting into water and actually repenting? Them saying simply, we don't need to repent. I have nothing to repent of. I need no savior. I am a child of Abraham. This false hope that they have, John sees it. Notice they don't actually say it. John puts the words in their mouth because he knows what they're going to say. John sees it, he knows it, and he reminds them next of what is reality. Not this false hope they've built their whole lives on, but what is Reality. Look at verse 9. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Notice, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their eyes are so internal, focusing on their own false righteousness, self-righteousness. They've taken their eyes off of God. They've forgotten who their God is. Remember, why does God choose Abraham in the first place? As he's a wandering moon worshiper from Ur not because of his great righteousness. He just chooses them out of his infinite wisdom and his love and for his own glory. God even says to Israel over and over again, it wasn't because you were the best or the biggest. It was just for my own glory that I chose you. Pharisees have forgotten that. Their eyes are on themselves and their own works rather than the God who chooses. And John is reminding them who their God is. God is the one who chooses completely out of his own goodness and love and infinite wisdom. He can make these rocks children of Abraham if he wants to, which, by the way, is exactly what happens with people coming into the kingdom. I would guess the majority of us are not ethnically sons of Abraham here, yet we're gathered to worship this God. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3. Look at this, Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, O Pharisees, those of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then a couple paragraphs later, Galatians 3, 29, If you are Christ's, if you're his, Then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise. What's the great song we learn in Awana? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. And then you do the arm thing that everyone loves, right? God does raise up stones and make them children of Abraham in his kingdom, brings in the Gentiles. So here's the reality. The religious leaders don't know the God they claim to worship. They're so blind, not only to their own self-righteousness, false righteousness, they're blind to the God they claim to be leading people to. So if your lineage doesn't actually save you, if your lineage doesn't uh, bring you into the kingdom of God, what does? Look down at verse 8. What is the fruit we are meant to bear? The fruit of repentance. It's actually turning away from your own works, The fruit isn't good works that you're doing. It's repentance. It's actually turning away from your own works. Don't miss this. Don't misunderstand this. John's message, the message of the kingdom, is not do better. That's the message of the Pharisees. That's the message of the enemies of the kingdom. We're going to add a bunch of extra laws to God's law. Follow them, right? Do better. That is not the message of the kingdom. John is saying... To come into the kingdom, you need to see who you really are and actually turn from your false works. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his uh, allegorical book, The Great Divorce, is a story of a bunch of people from hell that get on a bus and drive to heaven. It's an allegory. It's an allegory. Uh, drive to heaven and they they land, the bus parks on kind of the outskirts of heaven and uh, you can travel up into heaven but they're on the very outskirts so they go to explore and as they're exploring people from their life, People from uh, before they died come to them who are Christians and come down as kind of angels and begin to hit on these areas in their lives that they need to repent of or someone that they're not forgiving, that they're harboring unforgiveness and all these different things. And one by one by one by one, these people who got off the bus refuse and they get angry and gladly go sit back on the bus waiting for it to travel back down into hell. And the point that Lewis is making here is there aren't just neutral people who are just waiting to hear the gospel. There's everyone who is blind to their own sin and their choice is cling to it, cling to your pride with all your might or turn from it. And in fact, he has a famous line that says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell choose it. All right, so this picture of repentance, what's the one thing? What's the fruit you're meant to bear? It's actually turning from your works, realizing who you really are, that there is no righteousness here. I have to get it from somewhere else, someone else. Right? What does the scripture say is in here, not the righteousness that we think we have, that the Pharisees think they have, but rather we are by nature children of wrath. The heart is deceitfully wicked, Who could know it? The last thing you could ever or should ever trust is your own heart. That all our good works are what before God? Filthy rags before God. There is no one who does good. No, not one. To repent, you have to see who you really are and see there's nothing here to offer that isn't filthy rags. I must get my righteousness. I must get my goodness from someone else. The message of the kingdom is not Christians are good and Pharisees are bad or sinners are bad. It's rather Christians see, those who repent see, those who would come into the kingdom see. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We all followed the course of this world. We all followed the prince of the power of the air. We were all by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Those who repent know who they are and that there's no goodness here, but they know where to go or who to go to for their goodness. That's the difference. That's the message of the kingdom. Repentance, turning from ourselves, turning to the only righteous one, Jesus, and that's not something you do just at your conversion. Jeff put a quote up last week. I'll quote it again. Martin Luther's quote is first of the 95 theses that sparks the Reformation 500 years ago. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of the believer should be repentance. The entire life, not a one-time act. You don't turn away from yourself to Christ and then turn back to your own righteousness and sanctification as if you're somehow made awesome and then you should rely on yourself again. You never turn away from him. Do you grow? Yes, but how? Not by becoming a better version of yourself, but by being conformed into his image. Your growth is being made to look more by, by, like him by his spirit. You never turn back to trusting your own works or your own righteousness. You are always reliant and trusting on him. His. That's the message. Turn from your own self-righteousness and rest and take joy in the repentance that it's not up to you. You don't have to carry the weight. He carries the weight for you. That's the message that John declares to these enemies of the kingdom. So we see the enemies of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, turn from your dead works. And then the next thing we're going to see is the one that we turn to, the king of the kingdom. Verse 11 I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenching fire. So, We've seen John declare the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Why? Because the king is coming. The king is coming. And when he comes, he's going to put all things right. And so in these last two verses, we see three things about Jesus that John is exalting. He is the majestic king. He is the mightier baptizer. And he is the eternal judge. The majestic king, the mightier baptizer, and the eternal judge. Look at the first John is is the kind of celebrity of his day. He didn't have a campus, you know, multiple campus and multi-site church, but kind of the equivalent, right? The whole region is coming to see him. The the whole towns are emptying out to come hear his message. They're all being baptized in the Jordan. He is the celebrity of his day. Everyone's coming out to see him, and yet what does he say? There's one coming after me who's mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy of. To carry, I'm preparing the way for someone else. Don't look here. I'm just preparing the way for someone coming after me whose shoes I'm not worry, worthy to carry. Which in that day, because they don't have cars and they don't really have paved roads, you have sandals that you walk on, it would have been your most disgusting you know, item of clothing. It's just in the dirt all the time and in the whatever else grossness is on the ground. And so taking someone's shoes off or washing their feet, hold on to that for... When you read John, I guess, Uh, washing their feet is a job for a slave. And John is saying, even that, his greatness, his majesty is so infinite, I'm not worthy to carry his shoes. Notice the difference here between John and the Pharisees. The Pharisees whose attitude is, I'm righteous all on my own. I need no savior. You just need to be more like me. Versus John, who's showing, showing, depicting something we see all throughout the scriptures, which is when you encounter the living God, the first thing you're aware of is how empty you are. Isaiah 6, as Isaiah beholds this vision of God, what does he do? Hits the floor and says, depart from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. What does Peter do when he witnesses the miracle of Jesus? Get away from me. You're immediately aware of how empty you are. This is a depiction of true humility. Seeing him makes you see yourself rightly and makes you only want to exalt him. Makes you just want to be a living signpost to him, someone who just prepares the way for others to look at him. We'll see John say, he must increase, I must decrease. If I ever taught a preaching course at a seminary, if they ever wanted you know someone who has no experience really in preaching to teach others, uh, I would use John as an example and say, get out of the way. I don't care about your charisma. Exalt him and only exalt him in your sermons. That's what John is doing. Notice that difference between his attitude and the attitude of the Pharisees. Jesus is the majestic king. Second thing we see, he is the mightier Baptizer. So, John says his baptism is of repentance. Right? What's his job? His job is to prepare the way. I, I turn people, I can turn them, repent, and point them to Jesus, but Jesus will come after me, and he baptizes with the living God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and fire. What fire, just to clarify, typically that is, uh, I think, misinterpreted as some, something else. Baptized you with the Holy Spirit, and then a second thing in the past 200 years or 100 years after the Pentecostal movement and Charismatic movement. This was a source text for this sort of second baptism, this varsity level Christianity that we're supposed to get. Uh, Almost certainly, what's happening here is fire is a descriptor of the first, uh, a descriptor of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. What do you see all throughout Acts as the Holy Spirit is falling on people? The first time you see tongues of. Fire above their heads, right? Fire, something you think about being filled with the life of the living God, being enlivened, going from death to life, being filled with power. Jesus says, I'm going to send to the Father, you wait, you'll be my witnesses when what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses, you'll receive power from on high. So, almost certainly what's happening here is fire is a descriptor, not some sort of second baptism idea, but John is simply saying, I, my baptism, compels you to turn to him, his baptism. He does something I could never do. He, I turn you, he fills you. and doesn't just fill you with energy or doesn't just fill you with motivation. He fills you with the life of God, God himself, the spirit of the living God. Again, it's another way simply to say, don't marvel at me. Don't marvel at this. Rather, he is infinitely more majestic than me. I can't carry his shoes, and his baptism is infinitely greater than mine. And then lastly, we see the third thing. This king, this one that is coming, is the eternal judge. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So if you were to, you know, grow wheat, again, you guys are like, great, Jared's gonna teach us about farming. Uh, I, I looked it up. Um, grow wheat, cut it down, you put it on your threshing floor and like you, your ox would trample it to kind of loosen the grain from the husk, but then it's all in one giant heap. The stuff you want and the stuff you don't want. So you take a little winnowing fork or a pitchfork or whatever the scarecrows are holding to scare off the the crows. Oh my gosh, I just got that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) A winnowing fork and you would take it in the giant heap and throw it into the air and the grain that weighs more would fall down but the chaff, the husk, would blow away. It's really light. So it's a way of separating. And so John is giving this picture. Remember, the axe is at the root of the tree. It's ready. The king is coming, and the winnowing fork is in his hand. The first thing we see is judgment isn't way far away. It arrives when the judge of judges arrives. The winnowing fork is in his hand. And notice, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the thresh, his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He is the one bringing the judgment. The arrival of the king of kings is the arrival of the judge of judges, which for his people is unbelievably good news. If you are his, if you are the wheat, if you are his people, his arrival is unbelievably good news. He will bring his people in. He will gather his wheat into the barn. But, but if you are not his people, if you are the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see these two things. Again, remember the Pharisees. What are they putting their hope in? Their false hope in, I'm a child of Abraham. John here is showing Jesus is the one who determines his people. Again, we read it earlier, Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, if you are his Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. His arrival is incredibly good news if you are Christ. If you are not, it is the most terrifying news imaginable. If you find yourself in a situation, let me just say this lovingly, if you're not a Christian, if you've never repented, and you're confronted with sin and you don't repent, and you utter the four words, you don't judge me, God is my judge. Let me just tell you, those are the most terrifying four words you could utter. You're right. He is your judge, and he is a just judge. He will gather in his people, but those who aren't. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The pastor, Kevin DeYoung, said uh, years ago, went to church service for you in Charlotte, and he said, your sins must be paid for, and they will be, either in hell or on the cross. His people will be gathered in. Those who aren't his people, his arrival, is a terrifying thing. Now, I want to sit in this for a second. The first sermon, when we started this series in Matthew, I I said at the beginning, one of my prayers for us as we walk through this gospel is that we would see Jesus for who he is, not who we would like to mold him into, not who we would like him to be, not some false version that is more palatable for us, And so we've seen up to this point he is a tender savior. He saves the rejected, the outcast, or outcast we even saw on Easter. He goes to Mary as she's doubting, as she's weeping, and he calls her name. And here we see another side of the portrait that Matthew is painting of our great king and that he's infinitely majestic. He's the king of kings and he is the judge of judges. So here's the opportunity for us to take him as he is, to adore the judge of judges, or to try and mold him. And you can't mold him. Don't dare try to make him squishy. Don't try to make him more palatable or pretend he's unconcerned with sin or with holiness. He is the lamb. He is also the lion. I think one of the best authors, I guess I've quoted him this whole sermon, one of the best authors who depicts this about Jesus is C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. You get two, two scenes, one in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as the kids find their way into Narnia and they run into Mr. Beaver, the children's story, uh, run into Mr. Beaver and they're asking about Narnia and he's describing it to them and he is, eventually describes Aslan, the lion, the, is his, Lewis's character for Jesus. And he describes Aslan and uh, says he's, he's the lion, he's the great lion, the lion. And Susan, one of the girls, says, oh, I, I thought he was a man. I think I'd be nervous to meet a lion. Is he safe? And the beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. And another story, in the silver chair, the sixth book, another girl named Jill finds her way into Narnia accidentally gets in a fight with actually the guy that she came in with and she's exhausted from her trip and she's dying of thirst and she finds herself alone and then is, feels like she's actually dying of thirst and then hears a, a stream and finds a stream but then notices right above the stream is a giant lion, is Aslan. She doesn't know who he is. And so she's staring, doesn't know what to do. She's very uncomfortable as this big lion is just there staring at her. And she said, or he says to her, are you thirsty? If you're thirsty, drink. And she says his voice was like it was made of gold, like it was heavy. And it didn't make her less terrified, but it rather made her terrified in a different way. And then he repeats again, if you're thirsty, come drink. And so she takes a step forward. And then she says, could you maybe go somewhere else while I do, while I come drink? And he responds to her with a look. And a low growl. And she says, she realizes she might as well have asked a mountain to move for her convenience. And then she asks, Do you promise not to do anything to me if I come and drink? And he says, I make no such promise. And then she says, Do you eat little girls? And he says, I have swallowed girls and boys, women and men, kings and kingdoms, and entire realms. And then she says, Well, then I dare not come and drink. And he says, Then you will die of thirst. And she says, Well, I'll go look for another stream. And he says, There is no other stream. And so she comes and she drinks, and she says it's the most cool, refreshing drink she's ever had, and she doesn't even need to drink a lot. Her thirst is instantly quenched, and Lewis is depicting there this. Another portrait of Jesus who is a mighty lion, but a lover of children. The same lion who kids can ride around and cuddle. So we've seen he is a gentle and lowly Savior. And here we see he is the eternal judge. He's infinitely mightier than John. John's not worthy to carry his sandals, but he's the same Savior who will take off 24 sandals and wash his disciples' feet, including the one that's about to betray him. Don't you dare mold him into one or the other. See him for who he is, not who you would like him to be. There is no other stream for you to go to. He is tender and powerful. He is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. He's the infinite creator. He could end your life in an instant. He gives you the breath you just took. He gives the heartbeat that just kept you alive for another second, and yet he's the same God who sees people like with sheep without a shepherd and is moved by compassion. He's the same infinite God who says, let the little children come to me. He is the only one who can actually defeat your enemies, the only one who can defeat your real enemies, not the false enemies in your mind. He's the only one that can actually change your heart. He's the only one who can actually show you who you are, whose majesty can actually turn the light back on yourself and see your own emptiness, where you can actually lay down all your self-righteousness and flee to him. He's the only one who sees every worry, the things you don't share with anybody, even your closest friend, he sees, he knows. He's the only one who knows every thought you've ever had. He's the only one who can actually satisfy your longing, who can truly quench your thirst. He's an infinite treasure of joy, an unending ocean of love, and he's the only one worthy of your worship. So to quote my friend that I quote pretty much every week, Robert Murray McShane, you have a choice today, dear friends, between two eternal fires. The eternal fire of the life of God, the spirit of the living God, the unquenchable fire of his love, or the eternal fire of hell. If you've never repented, turn. Your hope is built on a facade. It's built on false hope. Turn to the only source of righteousness that there is. And if you are a Christian, never turn back. Don't listen to the lies that others just need to get it like you get it, and others need to be as good as you, and then our world wouldn't be so bad. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Don't be blind like the Pharisees. Never turn back to your own works. Keep turning to him. Come to him. He gives a drink that will quench your thirst truly. Don't cheapen him. Exalt him for who he is, the gardener, right, the one who judges the fruit, the axe, the one who cuts down the fruitless trees, the ultimate baptizer who fills with the life of God, the ultimate farmer who has the eternal winnowing fork in his hand, brings in his own people and casts out his enemies, the true king who brings you into his kingdom and forgives the repentant, pardons the sinner and the true seed of the woman, the one Genesis 315 points to, who will crush the head of the serpent. Choose the fire of his unquenchable love. Let's pray. Father, what a sobering thing it is to behold the beauties of the gospel and know the truth. This happened in spite of me. It's not as if we were neutral. It's not as if we were searching for you. We were sprinting away from you as rebels. And yet you sent your son to live a perfect life, to pay the debt of us rebels, and to bring us into your family. I pray that we would know him, be known by him, adore him, that the schemes of the enemy would be made laughable, Because our eyes are fixed, we've never turned back away from our only source of righteousness. I pray that you would fix our eyes on him, that it would be difficult for us to look away, that your spirit would sanctify us, we would love him more, and that would just bleed into every area of our lives. We'd be better wives and husbands, we'd be better parents, we'd be better friends, we'd be so quick to repent, we'd be so unconcerned with our own glory and our own Uh, thoughts in other people's minds, that they would think highly of us, that we would embody John, John's humility of our lives are meant to exalt your son. Our names will be forgotten. Our great-grandkids won't remember them, but your name will last forever, and we will praise it for all eternity, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would set our eyes on you in your beautiful name, amen.